Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Elise Jordan, political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. She's also written for a variety of outlets, including Time and Vanity Fair. Prior to her time with NBC, Elise spent time at the Bush 43 White House, the State Department, and the National Security Council. She's a graduate of Yale University and is coming to us today from New York City. Elise, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Actually, better than New York City, I must admit. I'm in Sag Harbor right now. Oh, so we've well. kind of decamped out here yeah, since oh, the pandemic. We have, you know, we've still been doing that COVID thing, not paying New York City rent. So we'll see how long we can get away with it. Glad to hear that you've escaped the clutches of the Big Apple. But I want to talk today about a couple of things. I want to talk about Rick Scott and what I'm going to call in air quotes, Elise, a Republican tax plan, as well as looking forward to November and 22 and 24. But first, I want to talk about, you know, I don't know if you're still a Republican. I'm an independent now, but the party that we used to work for anyway. I'm not a Republican anymore. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I can't blame you. Um, and talk about, you know, the state of the GOP or rather the chaos and weirdness, frankly, now, Elise, that makes up the Republican Party. So right before we started recording today, you sent me a story out of Mississippi, and I wanted to save it for the show because I think it's a good example of exactly where the GOP is in this moment of time. And and so tell us a little bit of story. So in Mississippi, the former governor, Bryant, got into this deal with Brett Favre, obviously, you know, Mississippi native, but also one of the greatest football players in NFL history. So give us a sense of what went on down there and how you see it sort of as a larger example of just what's going on. So this was really an incredible investigation. I want to give credit where credit's due, and I certainly hope that the Pulitzer Committee is noticing that this investigation happened. Anna Wolf at Mississippi Today, it's just been this amazing five-part series digging into Mississippi's welfare department and how they disperse funds. And at the end of the day, you know, she was looking into all of this and $77 million that was supposed to go to poor people in Mississippi was misspent. And so there's a long trail, but you always hear so much from Republican politicians about get people to work, you know, let's not give people a handout. And Mississippi is the poorest state. Almost one in five people live in poverty, so there's great need. And this money simply was not going to poor people. In fact, the Mississippi Republicans would brag that they hadn't dispensed funds. So this would happen year after year. So where did this money go? You know, five million went to one of Brett Favre's projects 
And then, you know, a new volleyball court got built at University of Southern Mississippi, where coincidentally Brett Favre's daughter played volleyball and also to a company, a pharma startup that Brett Favre was involved in and that Governor Phil Bryant became very interested in. And, you know, it was just this trail of they're paying for crazy expenditures, paying Brett Favre for one speech, a million dollars, yet they can't do anything for struggling men and women. And God forbid we actually do something for, you know, women's health in a state where infant mortality and maternal mortality is really an issue, too. So to kind of sum it up, it's a huge investigation. It's just depressing as hell. But people should notice because we hear so much in politics from activists about Black Lives Matter, and then no one pays any attention to what's actually happening in the state with the largest African-American population. Well, and you're a native of Mississippi, right? I am. Born and raised, grew up. Our senior advisor, Stuart Stevens, is as well. And Stuart notes that, you know, to your point about Mississippi being the poorest state in the nation and the current governor, Tate Reeves, in a sort of decrying federal expenditure that you know, it makes up, I think, more than half the state's budget, right? If Mississippi didn't have federal money, it would be probably, no offense to Mississippians or you or Stewart in particular, a third world country. No, and I mean, there are parts of the Delta where it's similar to things that I've seen when I've traveled in the third world. And that's why it's just so pathetic, all of the rhetoric that's thrown out there. And also, you know, you look at what's happening with the Mississippi Attorney General right now and Roe versus Wade may very well be overturned because the Mississippi attorney general is pushing this case using millions of dollars in taxpayer funding to end abortion in Mississippi. But what about helping the kids, you know, after the fact? And, you know, it makes me think about how the Republican Party has changed since the days when my grandfather voted for Reagan and my dad was a Reagan guy and supported H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. And they were pragmatic Republicans and there wasn't just the nastiness and the ideologues where it just muddies everything so much to the point of no serious public policy happening. And I think big picture with the Republican Party, we're really seeing how that lack of seriousness is a national security threat. You look at what's happening with Ukraine and this isn't a joke that we have some high brinkmanship going with a nuclear state. The stakes are just too high, yet you see just a complete lack of seriousness and Republican politicians in Congress who are more concerned with getting a good soundbite on Fox News than actually doing anything to protect the national interests of their country, but to also help better the lives of the men and women of their country. Well, and, you know, on the government side, right, thinking back to what you said about Reagan, the, you know, what, what did he say in that speech is sort of the, the nine most dangerous words are I'm from the government and I'm here to help, which became a mantra for many people, right? It was, was it Grover Norquist or one of the other people who said, you know, shrink the federal government to the size where you can drown it in a bathtub, right? Which aside from being a disturbing image, gives you a sense of how they feel about government. One, so many of these guys have been on the government payroll, most, if not all of their careers. Secondly, you see in a place like Florida, I believe it was in 2020 or last year, Elise, that like in a place like Florida, there had been millions of dollars, I think, in federal rent relief money that had not been released to people who needed it. Right. And so they'll take this money, but they won't spend it or they'll spend it on the wrong things. But then if a hurricane rolls in, right, FEMA better be on the spot. Right. Because they want to get their developer donors 
to help get their money and to get their payback. It's really such a long, long road from George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism that, you know, you and I both work to promote. Yeah. And I mean, maybe Republicans were not always the most touchy feely party. They saw it as sort of like stayed pretty boring, actually. Right. Conservatism was not wild eyed. And the wild-eyed conservatives, as you know, at least as I always say, there's a guy named Gary, and he would be in the room with us. And we're always a little worried about Gary because if Gary ever took over, we were in a lot of trouble, right? The problem is Gary's taken over. President George W. Bush is gone. Mitt Romney's in the United States Senate, but he is an outlier as far as sort of, I think, decency amongst many Republicans, national Republicans anyway. And so it's like this creeping thing that sort of developed. Maybe it started with Palin. Maybe it exacerbated during the Tea Party thing. Like the monster ate them or they have become what they promised they never wanted to be or they didn't want to be. And so now, to your point, all of it is performative. All of it is the culture work. None of it is governance. Right. I mean, in Florida, Ron DeSantis has the don't say gay thing and then he has the 41 percent of textbooks which have CRT. That's culture war policy masquerading as like good government or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, the moment for me that was like the true break. It was like when the RNC gave Roy more money for his campaign, you know, after like Mr. Creeping on underage women at the mall, it was just like, this is not going to be reformed. This is not going to be saved. And then I guess, I mean, obviously the RNC can issue some pretty dumb statements, but then, you know, saying January 6th was legitimate political discourse. I think that tells you exactly where we are today. If urinating in the hallways of the United States Capitol, if that's your idea of legitimate political discourse and you want that in your hallways, I I don't, you know, see where we have to go from here. Look, I was always a campaign guy, but you've been on the policy side of things. And so now the GOP is a party without policy. And it seems to revel in that fact because so many of the folks aren't interested in governance, right? Governance is supposed to be boring, right? It's supposed to be the sausage making and the dealing and like, you know, backroom deals. Like that's how stuff has gotten done in human history, like going back to guys trading rocks for sticks or whatever the hell it was. This is always how it's gone. But now to your point, it's how performative can I be? How ugly can I be? How much outrage can I create so that it's either the Fox News hit, it's the email, it's whatever, but it's all to one purpose, which is to aggrandize and push someone towards what they believe is a greater power in reality or perception of it? Well, there's just such a nastiness to it that I don't like coming from anyone in politics and, you know, reveling in despising the other. And you know, at this perilous stage where you don't see people really trying to look at the other side and what their complaints are and trying to come at it from, you know, any middle ground whatsoever. And I guess, you know, the campaign I worked on most recently was for Senator Rand Paul, his presidential campaign in 2016. And really, the reason that I worked for him was because he embraced a less militaristic foreign policy and actually was responding to what you would hear from Republican voters versus the Republican Party was still in the clutches of the donor class. And yes, Republican voters went for someone with purportedly a less militaristic policy who didn't want a nation build, but that was Donald Trump. And we saw where that got us. I remember watching Paul in that race, at least. And, you know, I went to watch him at CPAC and I thought he gave a really interesting speech. And, you know, CPAC back then was 
very young, very libertarian leaning. I don't know what the hell it is now. They hand out tinfoil hats. But he had given a similar speech at UC Berkeley not long before that, where he had also gotten incredible, you know, the kids had loved it. But now here he is like, what the hell happened? You know, his dad is Ron Paul, right? Who Ron's always been out on the libertarian edge, get rid of the Fed and all the other stuff, right? But this was a guy who I even wrote, I think, an article that said when he dropped out that he had the ability to be a force in the United States Senate, a different way of thinking. And now it seems that he's just sort of plugged himself into the, the GOP matrix wackiness. Well, you see, that's what's most visible because that's what gets attention. And that's where Republican politicians manage to get their donor money and to get attention. I do think it's a mistake that more attention hasn't been paid to Senator Paul when he's been talking about the origins of COVID and the gain of function research that the United States has funded. This isn't just some quack right wing conspiracy the way it has been dismissed by so many on the left. It's something that we need to understand what the origin story is. And if our country is messing around with this dangerous research to the tune of millions of dollars, giving it to a foreign government, then that's something we need to research. So it's sad that because of all the overheated rhetoric and because, you know, my friend Senator Paul can sometimes appeal to the Fox News crowd that when he actually has an important message like that, when he actually has an important message, it gets disregarded just because there is so much noise right now. Well, but I mean, let me just ask this, because I will declare ignorance on all of the stuff that you're talking about vis-a-vis -vis the sources of COVID. The only thing I remember, though, is him fighting with Anthony Fauci, which says to me, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Because if you're a United States senator and you're trying to make a serious point going after Fauci like that, you have to know that it's going to put you in that place because he's not a dumb guy. No, and I disagree with the tone he's taken in attacking Dr. Fauci because that overshadows what his actual message and what his actual line of questioning is. Anthony Fauci controls billions of dollars in funding of the U.S. government. He deserves to be held to a strict standard of scrutiny. This kind of gain-of-function research that we're doing should be investigated. We should have congressional hearings about it. We should be able to talk about the origins of COVID-19 in a way that isn't becoming part of a woke culture war. We should be able to address reality and fact and let some of the feelings get removed from it. But you haven't seen that in that debate. And it's a microcosm of so many debates, unfortunately, that we're having right now. So let me talk about that. I was talking to somebody earlier today, another old friend of mine who I worked in Republican politics with and is still there. We're sort of talking through this. And I, I said, you know, it's weird that the people who make the most noise in either party, at least the Republican Party or the Democratic Party are not actually Republicans or Democrats. On the Democratic side of the aisle, most of the folks who make the most noise on the most progressive of the progressive left are self-declared socialists. They are not big D Democrats. And most of the folks in the Republican Party, which I would say is now the majority, at least of the Republican primary electorate, if it's not, you know, so many elected officials, is Jeremy Peters from the New York Times says they're not Republicans and they're not conservatives. They're anti-liberals. Limited government, fiscal responsibility, strong national security. Like for a lot of the Republican Party, that stuff's all out the window. As I said, being a Republican meant being, relatively speaking, boring. You weren't going to be crazy eyed in new policy proposals. 
because that's not what being, quote, conservative is. But now, and maybe this always happens, maybe this is, you know, a late stage democratic problem is that the noisiest voices with the least amount of willingness or ability to actually get anything done are the ones that are controlling so much of what's happening. And on the Republican side, to your point, the establishment didn't listen enough, right? Didn't listen, didn't listen, didn't listen. They're still thinking that Art Laffer and, and trickle-down economics work. And on the left, the establishment wing, which I think is bigger, probably significantly bigger than the progressive wing, is scared to death of its own party. So what happens is you have these weird internal dynamics that turn off like 65, 70% of the country. And so it's now like, who am I going to vote for? The person that scares me least, the person I hate less, like is not a good way for voters to look at the people they have to choose from. I sadly agree with that. And, you know, on the Republican side, say what you will, but everyone's mercenary enough and they want power enough that they are willing to abandon all of their principles to win. So they join forces with the authoritarians and they suddenly abandon their foreign policy views. They abandon their uh, taxation views. They abandon so many of their policy views. And then on the Democratic side, you really see how the fringe has destroyed Biden's presidency to some extent. And I don't know how he can necessarily salvage before the midterms because they have done, I think, so much damage. Because they harped on fringe issues that his base didn't care about, that the majority of the country didn't care about. And so they held up Build Back Better. And Biden now doesn't have much to show in terms of what he's delivered to the average American voter and to his average Democratic voter. And it's really put him in a bind. And I guess controlling that wing is difficult, but it's been sad to watch because they are only hurting themselves and what they could accomplish. I mean, just thinking back, Elise, as you've worked in a Republican White House, as if I, is the idea that, you know, you'd have, let's take the infrastructure bill, right? Which was a bipartisan thing, if narrowly so. I mean, there's no such thing as a broad-based bipartisan thing anymore. But, you know, for us, again, as an old advance man, and you're an old speechwriter, right? You would have been scribbling out speeches as fast as you could for Central Iowa, suburban Milwaukee, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Take credit, take credit. Right. And, and just get on the road. And I would have been on the road for 22 straight weeks, you know, pushing that thing. Every cabinet secretary would have been deployed day in, day out, week in, week out to describe it. All of the people in the party would be extolling the virtues of this. This is what it's going to do for this many bridges, this many jobs, all that other stuff. So it's not just a matter of accomplishment, but it's also a matter of, frankly, just marketing. They do have a story to tell. Unfortunately, I think that it's one that, to your point, as Rick Wilson likes to say, culture wars are where Democrats go to die, which is whether or not it's the abortion stuff that you're talking about, which is a real life public health issue, but it also has a cultural political significance or the don't say gay stuff, or all of the weirdness now of Tucker Carlson and this, I don't even know what the hell's going on there, and I want to get back to the weirdness part in a second, is the Dems have a story to tell. They refuse to tell it. And when President Biden does tell it, as you recall, that when President Bush or President Reagan or even President Trump went out and said something, those were like words as handed down by God. When Joe Biden gives a speech about voting rights, the first people that attack him are his own party. Immediately immediately or you know they give their own response to the state of the union address which is like wait the leader of the free world and of your party just went and gave his state of the union address and now you're giving a response to it that's not your job and this goes back to my point about 
you're not a Democrat. And it's okay not to be a Democrat. But if you're not going to be a Democrat, just at least admit that you are using the Democratic Party as a vehicle because, you know, you can't run as a socialist, right? Like, be honest about it. And also, do you want the Democratic Party to cater to educated professional class and people who live in urban centers? Well, that's what it is now. Yeah, that's what it is. And we're going to see, you know, the predictions for the 2022 midterms are abysmal and that's pretty accurate. I don't see anything that, you know, especially with you look at the move, DeSantis just pulled gerrymandering in Florida, and that's probably going to get finalized this week and probably be four new Republican seats just in Florida. And you look at the House being awash, you look at the seats that the Senate, they're going to have trouble holding on to, and maybe they need to look beyond what they already have and think about reclaiming some of the territory they ceded in the Trump years. That's one thing I, I'm glad you brought up because, I mean, this is one thing. I was down in Texas late last year. I've been to, I don't know, eight or nine states since November. And that's the one thing I've, I've found is that there are so many rural voters, I think, that are out there for the taking. There are so many faith voters that are out there for the taking. I think there are so many veterans, right, who are there for the taking. So many law enforcement because all of this if it's on the religious side, right, is, is this Christ-like? And look, the white evangelicals are now an adjunct, if not a core piece of what the Republican Party is today, and maybe they always have been, but they weren't in charge. But there's also, again, there's the chaos, the crazy. And I feel like, at least you're more in touch with the sort of Acela Corridor zeitgeist. Do the folks in that world understand that so much of America wants like the chaos to stop and the noise to stop? Because that's what I hear, and that's what we hear when I go out into the States. You know, I think that in media, it's just overpopulated with progressive Democrats are really owning the airwaves, basically. And in a way that I think that isn't productive or conducive to the party and what would actually appeal to a broader electorate. Because speaking of evangelicals, you know, I just I worked really hard. <laughs> I would debate with my uncle a lot. Oh, Trump did this. Trump did that. And then when he, do you remember when he visited the tornado victims and he autographed Bibles? I grew up Southern Baptist. You do not sign God's word with your own name. It just is so unseemly and unchristian and wrong. And so you see where there are these, you know, big picture, there are these opportunities to peel off Republicans who it's just too much for them and they don't like the unseemliness of it all. But then when you're talking about defund the police, when you're not addressing an immigration crisis at the border and you're allowing Republicans, frankly, to capitalize on it, because what's your plan once you end the COVID era, you know, refusal of asylum for people at the border, you know, you're going to have some bad headlines and you're going to keep people entrenched where they are. Let me ask you this. I grew up nominally religious. If you could intellectualize what a conservative evangelical voter is thinking when they see Trump, who is on paper and in reality 180 degrees from everything they should believe in, why are they taken in? Why are they so willing and ready to go to the ramparts for this guy and for so many people like him? Supreme Court justices, abortion, abortion, abortion. It was just hammered into evangelical Christians that abortion was all that mattered. And then you see Donald Trump was able to deliver Supreme Court justices. 
that really makes up for pretty much everything. And then I think also the loathing of Donald Trump by media elites also just feeds into the sense of victimhood, the victimhood that has really dangerously overtaken the country. Just the fact that so many people think that they are being persecuted at any given moment and have no sense of perspective over, you know, what real tragedy and real adversity might be at any given moment. I'm working on a biography about General Eisenhower during World War II, and I just, you know, (laughs) I wonder what he would have thought, like everyone just sitting around and complaining all the time after what they were able to achieve. And then, you know, that presidency was able to actually get us interstates, was able to build a better country for the generations that followed. And we're just not doing that right now. We have a Congress that is completely dysfunctional. Let's stay on Eisenhower for a second. He's both one of my favorite generals and one of my favorite presidents. He's in office, 53 to 61. Top marginal tax rate is 90%, I think. Something like that. Something none of us could even imagine. It was insane. And, you know, he realized that the tax rate was so high. He never made any money. And Mamie Eisenhower was from a wealthy Denver family, and they basically subsidized a lot of their lifestyle as they traveled from base to base to base. And when he finally got out of the army and he wrote his book about the war and he realized the tax rate was just absolutely obscene. And so that was his first time he ever encountered it. But that being said, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that for every bomber we have to build, for every nuclear missile we have to build is a kid without a school or a town without a firehouse or whatever. So he understood the greater good too. remember that it was his travels through the Western United States in the early 1900s, where he saw it was basically a 17th, 18th century, 19th century country. It was his travels through Germany and seeing the Audubon and those other things that say, wait a second, like to be a modern military and political power in this world, we will have to upgrade our infrastructure significantly, which he did. When the Supreme Court passed Brown versus Board of Education and desegregated schools, he sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock, Arkansas, to ensure that black kids could go to school there. Now, was he totally comfortable with the civil rights movement? He was not. He was a man of his time. But he also understood this is what the law of the land is. This is my responsibility as the president, and this is what I'm going to do. And he did it. Now, no man is perfect. No woman is perfect. No leader is perfect. But it seems to me that this was a man and an administration who very much understood their responsibilities. He obviously could not stand the likes of Joe McCarthy. I mean, the GOP of Eisenhower is not just dead. It's been dead for, I don't know, 20 years. And it seems like that sort of service, right, which, of course, he gave his entire life to service of the country. If service is first class and self-aggrandizement back near the bathroom, now self-aggrandizement flies the airplane. It's absolutely depressing when you think about it like that. But really, the reason I started it was because I couldn't understand how Donald Trump managed to hijack the Republican Party. And I wanted to study the boring Republican. I think it's a time that we should be revisiting Eisenhower. He wasn't divisive and he didn't endeavor to use the trappings of public office to make himself more wealthy. And, you know, and the taxation then was insane. And I believe he lowered the tax code and made it more equitable and not as extreme. But then right now, that's something that I look at with Biden and the Democrats as an easy win. 
And I wonder why they can't do something there. It's so popular to tax the wealthy more, the very, very wealthy and corporations. And it just seems like an easy pickup that would engender goodwill, you know, from that pocket of rural America that we're talking about, of suburbs outside of elite metropolitan centers. But instead of seeing policy prescriptions that are going to resonate with a broader audience outside of city centers and educated elites, you see a focus on student loan relief when so many voters that the Democrats need to reach can't imagine having the privilege of having student loans to begin with. You're right. This is one of those things where it is an economically populist, but also economically popular thing to do. But also, we put an ad out today, Elise, that Senator Rick Scott from Florida is a national Republican leader. He runs the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which, gang, is the political committee that is charged with defending incumbent Republicans and electing new Republicans to the United States Senate. And at least he put out a plan probably a couple months ago now that was like his 11 point plan for America. And one of them was everyone, quote, must have skin in the game. Everybody's going to pay some federal tax. And the, the other part of it was he also wants to sunset every federal law every five years, which now let's just start with the tax piece to your point about, you know, taking advantage of things. I mean, even John Roberts on Fox News, Fox News says you're talking about raising taxes on half the country, half the country. I mean, this is bananas. It makes no goddamn sense. I'm sure McConnell is beside him. Well, he, we know he's beside himself. But Scott, he's tripled, quadrupled, quintupled down on it, Elise. Rick Scott, now that's someone who really has an idea and a vision for himself that I don't think he understands. He's not ever going to be president of the United States, but he'll just, you know, be a complete wrecking ball and, you know, destruct these institutions within the Republican Party even further. So he's making that operation a joke. And then you look at the RNC and how there wasn't even a party platform the last go round in 2020 because they just didn't need one because it was all about the cult of Donald Trump. And so I guess I have one question for you as someone who worked in Republican politics and, you know, you had a lot of friends who were Republican close colleagues. January 6th still, I'm a little unsettled by the response to it just because the immediate response was the human response that you would expect if you're having to be barricaded in your office and you're worried about mobs that are attacking police officers and are trying to, you know, reach congressional members to harm them and are shouting to hang the vice president. And I know political expediency is the easy answer, but how could it be? How could so many Republicans who were threatened that day, get over it so quickly. Let me go back to the week before Election Day 2020. And the, I think the folks listening have heard this before. We wrote an op-ed the week before Election Day, and we asked our friends, the people you're talking about, friends, colleagues, roommates, right? What are you going to do? If Donald Trump loses, he's not going to go quietly into that good night. We know that. We know that for sure. What are you going to do? You're going to stand for democracy. You're going to stand for the rule of law. You're going to stand for free and fair elections. You're going to cross the river with them. They all cross the river with them. And so you, you said something earlier in our conversation about they're willing to stand with authoritarians. They're willing to stand with the guy in the Camp Auschwitz T-shirt. So last week, the second quarter FEC reports came out. A guy named Steve Schwartzman, who runs one of the biggest hedge funds in New York City, gave $10 million to Mitch McConnell's super PAC. Why? 
because his taxes might go up? What's the level of taxation that Mr. Schwartzman could ever practically be affected by? But he has said, after Jonathan Swan from Axios, I thought did a brilliant interview, illustrative and exposing interview of Mitch McConnell, what are your moral red lines? He doesn't have any. You said Donald Trump, you said he's responsible for January 6th, but if he's the nominee, you're going to support him. Who will be the nominee of my party? I have to support him. Like That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not sure it makes sense to anybody, but the bottom line is, and I think there's a different reason on the Democratic side of the aisle. Republicans just believe it's one of those things like you go to the doctor and the doctor's like, I don't like what's on the scan. And you're like, eh, it'll be fine. Ignore it and it'll go away. I think Democrats are the same way. I was just, at least before we started recording, I was listening to a report on NPR that said that the D January 6th committee might now not start hearings until June because they just have so much work to do. Like, can you not chew gum and walk at the same time? Like, there are going to be nerds who are interviewing people and going through documents, and you can sit at the dais and ask people these questions. And the truth is, they think it's bad for them, right? They don't like the ugliness. They don't like the spectacle. Well, and remember, the same thing happened right after January 6th when there was an opportunity you could have had firsthand testimony, eyewitness reports from people who were at the Capitol in the second impeachment proceedings. But, oh, no, it might distract from Biden's agenda. and We just need to move on. And yet, for history's sake, we need those eyewitness reports enshrined because we've seen how so many people are arguing that it was all a hoax and that it was Antifa and it was this and it was that. So it does matter to actually get the truth out there. Yeah. And look, I mean, here's the thing is you've got like a guy like Kevin McCarthy, who's minority leader of the U.S. House, you know, who's been on every side of January 6th, every side of Marjorie three names. The only person he gets mad at is Madison Cawthorn. And maybe that should tell us something. I know. I love how talking about breaking the seal and the orgies, woo, that got everyone all upset. <laughs> I mean, if there's a less appealing event than a Republican-led cocaine orgy, I don't know what it is. Of really old men who need to be retired. Oh, God, I know. I mean, I guess they're all in line for Tucker's tanning sessions at this point. But as I understand it, he has been out there telling high-level donors, you need to give me lots of money because I'm going to ensure that there's a more stable normal Republican conference in the House next year when I'm speaker. I'm talking to these people. I'm like, what are you smoking? Like, what? None of these conferences, Mitch McConnell's conference or McCarthy, whether or not they're minority leader, Senate speaker, whatever, these are going to be more Trumpy. These are going to be more crazy. I know. Good luck, buddy. So as a political operative, let's just talk this out. I want to hear your take. And my take is that you look at who Donald Trump is choosing to get behind, you know, Someone like J.D. Vance, it's because he needs to keep Peter Thiel happy with him. And, you know, you look at the other people that he's chosen to give the nod to. They're people that he, you know, in 2024, if he needs senators who are going to say that the election was stolen from him and going to you know, be on his side, he's going for the quacks. And that's who he's promoting. And I'm curious to see what May is going to hold, because there are so many of his guys he's given the nod to that are going to be on the primary ballots. And does the Trump effect still have impact in a Republican primary? And I would argue it does. It's a Republican primary, for God's sake. So 74 million people voted for the guy in 2020. Let's call it 75 because I'm bad at math. Let's say a third of those people, 25 million, are true believers. They probably over-index as primary voters, too, I would guess. So that 25 million may make up 50 or 60 percent of a primary. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, like, 
does, you know, does Josh Mandel squeak through, right? Who's even kookier than J.D. Vance. Now, J.D. Vance concerns me because I think that he will try actively to be the Glenn Youngkin of that race. Now, I think that Tim Ryan is very good for that race. And I think whoever the Republican is, you know, it will be a dogfight. If it's Mandel, I think Ryan will wipe the floor with him. But Vance is a chameleon. Oz is a nut. And this is where, like, you've seen this grousing about, well, they should have gone with McCormick, Dave McCormick, who's the another hedge fund billionaire running for these things. Which is, and that's the other part, too. At least they're all the people they run are gajillionaires. They're all oligarchs. Republicans run oligarchs in these big races, right? They're not normal human beings. When's the last time Dr. Oz did anything normal? He starts his campaign, then he goes to L.A. and kisses the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Like, these are strange people. And the ones who are smart and who know better, I am far more fearful of them any day than Donald Trump, who I think is legitimately crazy. And if he had loving family members, he would have been, you know, getting injected with something and being taken care of a long time ago. But then you have so many of these Ivy League populists who are from wealthy families, and they certainly benefited from the system that they deride and campaign against and hate against it so much. And I just don't understand. You know, I was lucky to get to go to Yale from small town rural Mississippi, and I'm extremely grateful that those gates and that opportunity was open for me. And was there plenty of left wing discourse that didn't really relate to or believe in? Sure. But I got a great education. And also the idea is that you're supposed to be exposed to different ideas and different ways of thinking so that you can actually learn to think yourself. But that's really what's missing from our media environment these days, that everyone's so stuck in their silos and they don't want to hear anything that challenges their innate beliefs. And, you know, we're stuck in this moment of just hating on each other. And I think a lot of folks just trying to get on with their lives, right? And that's one thing we heard from some allies of ours in South Florida that do a lot of their work in black and brown communities, voter registration, that, you know, let's take the don't say gay thing. And they talk to all of the people they're registering to vote, right? They, they have a battery of questions and it's, you know, it's qualitative, but it's interesting to hear anyway. And you've done, I know you've done just gobs and gobs of research. They think the don't say gay stuff is bad and they think it's mean spirited. And they would like it not to happen. And they don't think Ron DeSantis is a very nice guy. But when they hear a Democratic candidate whose whole platform is we have to undo don't say gay, when they're like, my rent just went up $1,000 a month. So it's like, I'm never going to vote for the Republican because I know what I get with that. But the Dems have to help me figure out why it is they're a better option or I'll just stay home. And that was in 2016. I'll never forget a North Carolina female African-American voter who said, you know, I know climate change is a real problem. I know, you know, these transgender bathrooms, but I just, you know, I need a job that my wages are, you know, finally going to increase. Like, why can't Hillary Clinton, why can't the Democrats talk about that more often? And the message becomes so muddled by responding, by letting Republicans set the offensive and, you know, get out there with these crazy attacks and then responding to them. You know, you look at what happened in Virginia. The conversation became too much about critical race theory when voters just wanted their kids back in school. I mean, we got a call, you know, what should we do about critical race theory? And Rick and I were like, say it's racism. And they're like, well, but you see, we want to explain it. I'm like, no, you don't. No, 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 no. You do not want to explain it. And then we said, we did an ad in Virginia saying this. When you hear the words critical race theory, 
They're saying that because they can't say the N-word and get away with it. And if you started saying that writ large to every Republican, they'd be running for the hills because they might be bigots, but they don't want to have to say it out loud. Now, they'll do it in a way that like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley did it in the Justice Jackson hearings, which, as I said to somebody else the other day, is both fascinating, disheartening and disgusting to me that that is comfortable territory for them. Acting like that is a place that they were much more comfortable being. They were happy to do that, that to them, because they thought this is going to energize my people, right? This is going to get me more money. This is going to get me on Fox News. To your point, as we started, this is a woman who was eminently qualified for the job, right? Seemed like a, an incredible person, like the smile on her daughter's face, right? Still, it, as I think about it, lights me up, just this pride, you know? This is a woman who would be our neighbor, and we would be glad to have her as our neighbor. And these assholes are sitting up there, like taking pot shots. And then they roll into the whole pedophilia thing and the don't say gay thing and men shouldn't be teachers. And then, Elise, pardon my rant, you have Tucker Carlson put out some weird homoerotic video that the Greeks and Romans would blush at, right? Has an interview with a guy who talks about, pardon my French, testicle tanning as a way to increase testosterone. Like, what is going on? As George W. Bush said at Donald Trump's inaugural, that was some weird shit. They are full of weird shit. I don't get it. I'm beside myself. I'm psychologically triggered, Elise, because it's so weird. It's insanity. When it's insidious, it's worse because they know better and they have been in social settings where they haven't been able to behave like this. And maybe now they're incapable of behaving differently because it has become who they are. But Ted Cruz acting like that, who would you want to go to dinner with? Would you want to go have Justice Jackson over for dinner? Or would you want to have Ted Cruz over for dinner? I guarantee I'd know in a poll how the majority of Americans would answer. Well, listen, this has been fascinating. Alisa, I want to thank you for joining me. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media and where can we find you on the air? Elise underscore Jordan on Twitter. And I'm on MSNBC's usually Morning Joe a day or two a week and some other programs too. And appreciate anyone who tunes in and, you know, listens to me bloviate. Well, listen, I hope you'll come back when your book on Ike is done. I, I'm excited to read it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen or on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Until then, Elise, thanks again. And gang, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.